July the 10th, 1690. It's early morning off the shores of East Sussex, England. Louis XIV's French naval fleet rumbles into Beachy Head. When the Battle of Beachy Head is over, the greatest naval fleet in the world has destroyed 11 ships belonging to England and its Dutch allies. The English Channel is in the hands of the French. England's defeat unleashes panic and fear across the country. The King of England, William III, is in crisis. He cannot fund this costly war without further taxing his already put-upon subjects and possibly impoverishing his country. But out of crisis emerges a solution, a brilliant invention, the creation of a bank, the Bank of England, which will fund the war. One of the bank's founders, Michael Godfrey, leaves London to personally offer the bank's conveyance, their official paperwork, to the king. When Godfrey meets King William in the trenches, the king is taken aback by Godfrey's presence in the heat of battle. Godfrey is said to have replied to his king, I run no more risk than your majesty. Moments later, Godfrey is killed at the king's side by a musket ball. But Godfrey had done his duty, the transaction that would lay the foundation for credit for centuries to come and ring out like a shot into the present day was complete. To understand today's investment landscape, it's important to understand the history of how we got there. I'm Paddy Hirsch, and this is The Outthinking Investor, a podcast from PGM that untangles the origins, present-day opportunities, and future possibilities of the financial tools we take for granted. In this episode, with the help of my guests Matt Harvey and Greg Peters from PGM, and author, sociologist, and historian Sarah Quinn, I'm going to tell you the story of one of the pillars of the financial system. The creation of credit by the banks was the first great financial revolution. The second was the creation of the standardized bond. Today, three centuries after the Bank of England first opened its doors, our modern-day markets stand on that long-time foundation of war, trust, and ingenuity, even ushering us into what some may call a golden age of credit, where zero rates, and even negative rates, are speeding up lending at dizzying speeds. So how did we get here? And where are we headed? Watch your step. As Michael Godfrey found out in the trenches of war, this is a perilous journey. My first guest is Matt Harvey, Managing Director and Head of Direct Lending at PGM Private Capital. That's the private debt investment arm of PGM. Part of Matt's job is to focus on building enduring partnerships with clients based on a commitment to their long-term capital needs. It's a job based on mutual trust. It's, it's the premise of lending in the end. You have to trust that you'll get your money back and you have to trust that whom you give your money to will be a good steward of that capital. Matt receives a return for providing the capital in the hope that this relationship produces a win-win outcome. Fundamentally, that's what we're doing every day. We're evaluating companies and determining whether or not the risk of lending that capital is commensurate with the return we might get in return. Matt is always on the hunt for new investments with potential, and that can lead him to unexpected places all over the world. We got to work on the, uh, the exclusive ice cream distributor uh, for most big brands anyway for the state of Hawaii. And living in Chicago and having the, the opportunity to work on that deal in January and spending a lot of time in Hawaii to, to close that transaction was a quite 
fun moment. Matt had found someone who needed capital to grow his business. It was an entrepreneur who in the 70s struck a deal with Haagen-Dazs to be their first distributor to bring ice cream to the islands. You know, here's an individual who previously had no direct experience in either the ice cream industry or distribution per se, but had an interesting idea. And that is there was a market for branded ice cream in Hawaii. And, um, you know, the rest is history. Okay, so you might be wondering, how did we end up here in Hawaii in January? We're thousands of miles, not to mention a few centuries, removed from the smoldering flames at Beachy Head. What does Matt's Hawaiian adventure have to do with the Bank of England? I'm glad you asked. Matt's story is about trust and creating opportunities. It's about direct lending today and its potential in the future. We'll return to Hawaii later in the episode. Let's just say Matt's trip to the islands led to a better outcome than Michael Godfrey's trip to the trenches. But ice cream in Hawaii and William's war effort are very much connected. Now, William III didn't invent the practice of borrowing for war. Far from it. So much of the history of government credit is a history of war and war making. This is Sarah Quinn, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Washington and the author of the book American Bonds. As Sarah mentions, there's a long history of credit and war. But the creation of the Bank of England marked a paradigm shift in the financial markets. It was the first instance of a large institution specifically created to make large loans, a concept that would become integral to present-day lending. Borrowing for war would become regular practice by world leaders. If you wanted to go into war quickly and you don't have a standing army, you better be able to borrow. Which means that people better be able to trust that you are going to pay them back. Borrowing money from any kind of government is tricky. So they really do have to build a reputation and earn trust among lenders to be able to get money in quickly in order to mobilize quickly for war. And if you can't do that, you have a big disadvantage militarily and in terms of the development of your nation. Trust. From the very beginning of institutional lending, the trust that Matt was talking about earlier has been key. The Bank of England trusted King William to pay them back. Thanks largely to the bank, William then had the resources to turn the tide in his war against the French. When he did finally pay the bank back, he engendered more trust. On the flip side, during America's civil war, the Confederacy was unable to get a large loan to finance their effort because lenders deemed them not a worthy credit risk. In other words, this trust that we're talking about, and the lack of it, has decided the fate of nations, an age-old concept worth noting, even in today's investing environment. I mean, trust is so important. Yeah. Trust, and then kind of there are all sorts of social rules around it. I see credit and lending and bonds as part of the different ways that social groups negotiate who is going to get what, and how different groups negotiate within that, who's going to get what profits and who's going to get what risks. The coupling of the housing industry with credit was an essential moment in the evolution of the market. But as recently as the 1980s, home mortgages were not considered big business by banks because they weren't traceable pieces of paper. They weren't bonds. That is, 
Not until they could be pooled with other mortgages of other homeowners. Not until they could be sold to anyone willing to invest. That changed when the bond traders at the securities company Salomon Brothers began purchasing home mortgages and packaged them into mortgage-backed securities. This was a big bang moment. Here's the metaphor I use for how to think about what happens with securitization. From the position of the 1960s, I actually think about a big hill, and the hill being really high interest rates at the time, and a road that's full of speed bumps and has police officers everywhere and lots of traffic. Securitization is like a truck with a really revved up engine. But on the other side of that hill is a completely different world. There's going to be massive deregulation. All the speed bumps are going to go. All the stoplights are going to go. A lot of the police are going to be taken off the road. So then what you have is this like massively jacked up engine that's let loose under completely different circumstances. And it just barrels down the road and crashes. That jacked up truck barreling down the road had set the stage perfectly for the bond market of the 1980s. By then, the once sleepy, once very unsexy bond market had become the center of the action, determining the way investors view the bond market today. Salomon Brothers became the most profitable firm on Wall Street after its innovations on the bond market. But there was plenty of room at the party for players like Goldman Sachs, namely in the business of dealing high-yield corporate bonds, also known as junk bonds. In concert with the mortgage-backed security market, the high-yield market, the junk bond market, that development was absolutely crucial to the flow of capital. This is Greg Peters, a senior portfolio manager for PGM Fixed Income. He's been managing bond portfolios for public pension and private plans for decades and seen the markets rise and fall through many cycles. The development of the high-yield bond market, that led to some excess, of course, right? That led to the tech and telecom boom of, you know, the late 1990s. But by and large, that was a really crucial development from a capital market standpoint. Now, we know that we're just barreling down this road with the jacked-up engine that Sarah described. But before we zoom ahead, let's acknowledge the next big step in the development of the credit markets. It's the standardization of bonds. With standardization, all different kinds of bonds, regardless of size and duration, what the tenor was, how much interest they paid, all of these bonds now effectively look the same, so they could be traded amongst investors. I do think standardization is a key component to the development of the market, including rule of law. The the fact that uh, you have those two things together really allow for a market to grow because the end investor ultimately knows or they think they know what they're getting themselves into. Uh, And so you don't suffer from the vagaries of a bank a loan shark, whomever you want to describe that is lending the money. Remember Matt Harvey, our PGM lender from earlier in the episode? He says that standardization accelerated capital flows. So investors and companies alike could trust that that piece of paper had meaning, had value, just like we trust the implicitly the US dollar as fiat currency has value. That creates an efficient market. And so to me, the acceleration of that allows companies to borrow money more quickly. So trust is a really important part of this. It becomes implicit in the modern day, but it's massive. And 
the cycle of positive trust attracts more capital, attracts more investors. And like any fundamental market, you have a, a degree of supply and demand that creates the outcome. The more demand you have for a thing, an asset, a, a piece of paper, in the case of the bond example, the better the result is for whomever holds that asset. And if they're successful at taking that risk, that can in turn further grow their businesses, further grow their payrolls, further grow the economy in the end. And the opposite happens when you have a cycle of negative trust, as you might imagine. A recent cycle of negative trust continues to have an enormous impact on today's lending environment, one that Matt Harvey has intimate experience with. On September the 15th, 2008, Matt was managing a billion-dollar fund that was scheduled for closing on that day, the day Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy. Trust in banks and the financial markets crumbled. Billions and billions of shareholder value was wiped out overnight. We went through a period that followed of a couple of years where markets were essentially in limbo. It laid the foundation for alternatives to banks and capital markets. Indeed, out of the wreckage of this crisis, a new way of doing things emerged. The financial crisis in many ways was the, the sort of launch pad of the private credit and specifically the direct lending marketplace. Banks needed to change their approach to how they financed the capital markets and how they behaved in them. The result was far stricter lending standards. Soon the economy would begin its recovery and more and more companies looked to grow. Those companies couldn't always get capital from the banks at that point, though, and so alternatives to banks emerged. The opportunity existed for in institutional investors, insurance companies, pension funds, etc., to entrust their money with long-term credit managers and people with lending experience, some of which were previously in banks, to go provide that capital for a higher return than the banks might have historically provided. In short, the global financial crisis has led to a new era of direct lending. Today, we are in unprecedented times, with accompanying unprecedented opportunity. I think there's been lots of lessons learned. That's P. Jim's Greg Peters again, who reminds us that there was a very different kind of thinking before 2008. If you go back to before the global financial crisis and there was all this concern with private equity deals hitting the high yield market, and what proved to be true is that actually having the flexibility on the corporate side, allowing these companies to work through their problems, ultimately... Uh, is a better strategy than forcing them into bankruptcy. Greg says that credit cycles are playing out over months rather than years because of acceleration and flexibility. It's led to what Greg hails as today's golden age of credit. Credit investing uh, is a perverse dark art, as I like to call it, because essentially as a credit investor, what you have to worry about more than anything else is the excess. So when companies are doing really well, they have a tendency of being quite profligate, spending money hand over fist, and that really ramps up your leverage and takes the value away from the bondholder and onto the shareholder. Investors turn to private credit providers for high-yield lending solutions as an alternative to banks, particularly in a climate of uncertainty. Which brings us to another reason why Greg says we're in that golden age of credit. I coined that at the end of March of last year, 2020, because I felt that 
Corporate America had their backs against the wall. March 2020, you know what happened. With the arrival of lockdowns due to the pandemic, companies were, according to Greg, forced to focus on their balance sheets. We're fighting this terrible, unbelievable backdrop of COVID and global shutdown. But that forced these companies to focus on their balance sheet, delever, stop spending. And that is a perverse positive for credit investors. Now, I will say that everything is happening at hyperspeed these days. A big reason why things have been happening at hyperspeed? The zero rate environment. We're in this low global rate environment for some time. But I think it's fundamental. And I think what happened in 2020 to combat the crisis has only exacerbated the matter. And so we're up against this tremendous demographic challenge, sharply declining working age, population growth in many parts of the developed world. We've thrown a lot of debt at the problem. So now we have uh, even higher debt burdens and that implies, you know, weak trend growth, right? So I think low rates are here to stay for as long as the eye can see. So what does this environment mean for investors whose trust in the markets was shattered in 2008, but who continue to seek new opportunities? Here's Sarah Quinn again. People are perfectly capable of believing completely contradictory things. And when you ask them under different circumstances, they will give you a completely contradictory answer. Investors now are like investors in the past, which is... Maybe at one moment they think the whole thing is a mess and really dangerous. And then five minutes later, they also think, but I don't want to be left out of the party. There's an inherent danger with low rates. Investors naturally reach for yield, potentially channeling their money into higher risk companies. Central banks are talking about that risk. I'm not sure there's a lot they can do about it. But, but I do th- think it's interesting, though, that... You're also seeing savings rise as well. So it's also having an unintended effect of with yields so low, investors are actually hoarding cash, hoarding deposits. So so they're not necessarily just putting it all on the roulette table, right? That's actually creating even more of a structural challenge in that that, that's money that's not being spent, that's being held back, that slows down the economy. So yes, you have investors putting some of their assets into higher yielding, higher risk type of endeavors because they have to, because they have no choice. But then it's being offset by less spending, and more cash sitting in zero rates. Adding to the uncertainty of the moment, banks imposing negative interest rates, a course led by the European Central Bank. It's a super interesting phenomenon and confounding, I think, to central banks, which is why I think if the ECB could snap their fingers, they would be at a different policy rate than they are today because I think they, they struggle with the fact that this zero negative rate environment is having unintended consequence of hoarding. And, and what does that hoarding mean for the credit markets? Credit is somewhat betwixt and between here. You have equity risk and equity type of returns that are quite advantageous. 
Ultimately, though, I think investors have no choice, right? So the unfortunate reality is that there's so much money sloshing around the system that it's going everywhere. So it's going into bonds, it's going into cash, it's going into equities, it's going into credit. And so much cash sloshing around is something that I think is also here to stay over the near term. All of it adds up to a lot of unpredictability. In the golden age of credit, Craig says, tread carefully. It's about cyclicality, I guess. I'd be uh, worried about continuing to reach for cyclicality risk. While so many different signs point to an early to mid-cycle type of economic credit backdrop, the valuations are decidedly late cycle. So that disconnect is quite notable. So I would be hesitant to go out in the credit markets today and really reach for risk and reach for yield. There is one certainty about the uncertain future, however. There will be opportunities for investors. The market when we started in this business was very niche and, as we talked about, dominated by the banks. It was not a very large market, certainly among uh, non-bank, non-institutional credit managers. That's PGM's Matt Harvey again. Today, many estimates would frame the direct lending market at roughly a trillion dollar market, and it's growing at double digit rates per annum. And so the conditions exist for this to continue for some time. The reason why I think that will persist is because when you think about the sheer number of companies that need access to this type of capital, it's massive. Many estimates would say the U.S. middle market alone, if you just took it as a cohort, is the third largest economy in the world. In other words, the tantalizing future lies in what Matt is referring to, the middle markets. What is the middle market? It's a company that's one step above a small, let's say, family-run business, and one step below a large publicly traded company that would be a household name. More specifically, a company with somewhere between $50 million of revenue per year to a billion dollars of revenue per year. That's the type of range we're talking about. So these are real businesses, real products, usually quite established companies and marketplaces, but they're not so large that they can access bigger forms of capital in the publicly traded markets. Matt believes that the health of the job market is driven as much, if not more, by the middle market than by large companies. The value creation is exercised in payroll and take-home checks and new jobs and, and equity growth. And so that ability to grow economies, grow GDP, stay ahead of inflation, and so forth has fundamentally started in, in, in small companies and, and middle market companies. And the search for that middle market company that can become the next great company can lead you to ice cream in Hawaii in January. The trip was worth it, not just for the ice cream. Matt trusted the company would deliver on its promises and the company trusted that they'd find a steward for their capital. Over that time, built the infrastructure to then be the dominant distributor of all frozen goods in Hawaii. So not just ice cream, pizza, and, and any other thing you'd find in the frozen aisle at a grocery store. And together with the tourism and other growth of Hawaii, it actually became a, a quite valuable business and, and one that was very successful, employed a lot of people locally and was really a fabric in the economy. Anybody who's ever visited Hawaii, you've eaten product distributed that's been through this company's warehouses and trucks and so forth. 
The cycle of trust in the credit and bond markets has led to highs and lows and lessons learned. I mean, over time, lenders presumably get smarter about the way that they look at the institutions or the individuals or the companies that they're lending to and get better at that process. Do you think that the lending environment has improved in that way, that lenders are smarter and are, and are developing systems to make the system safer for investors? I definitely think they have more systems in place to monitor the companies and the credits. I also think there's a belief that flexibility is important. I think the willingness to work with struggling institutions uh, has been a benefit because that helps preserve value. If Greg has learned one thing about approaching the future, it's this. Listen to the past. I remember in 2005, we had this conference. And I remember it was me and a couple other older folks who at the time were experienced in the credit markets and we were listening to a couple new entrants into the markets. They were saying that they feel like they have a competitive advantage because essentially they're not uh, encumbered by knowledge. So the older folks who've been in the market uh, a while, they're not understanding how the world works today and being bogged down by financial history. That's a story that has always uh, stuck with me because that type of hubris, that type of you know, idiocy is exactly what will get you into problems, right? When you don't respect financial history, then you know the cycle's ready to turn. We know what happened three years after Greg's encounter, the biggest financial collapse since the Great Depression in September 2008. But what came after was just as predictable. From the great financial crisis, all the way back to what is still considered one of the major defeats in England's naval history. Out of wreckage and uncertainty comes a new way of thinking, of creating opportunities, founded on that centuries-old practice based on trust and possibility. Thanks to PGIM's Matt Harvey and Greg Peters, and to Professor Sarah Quinn for talking with us. More episodes of The Outthinking Investor are coming soon. We'll talk about today's hot topics like ESG investing, global pension plans, and even sovereign wealth funds, and covering their origins, present-day opportunities, and future possibilities. The Outthinking Investor is a podcast from PGIM and Bloomberg Media Studios. Follow, subscribe, and if you like what you hear, leave us a review. This podcast is intended solely for professional investor use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments involve risk, including the loss of capital. PGM is not acting as your fiduciary. The contents are for informational purposes only, are based on information available when created, and are subject to change. It is not intended as investment, legal, or tax advice, and does not consider a recipient's financial objectives. This podcast includes the views and opinions of the authors and may not reflect PGM's views. PGM and its related entities may make investment decisions that are inconsistent with the views expressed herein. This podcast should not be reproduced without PGM's prior written consent. No liability is accepted for any direct, indirect, 
direct or consequential loss that may arise from any use of the information contained in or derived from this podcast. This material is not for distribution to any recipient located in any jurisdiction where such distribution is unlawful. PGIM is the global asset management business of Prudential Financial Inc., which is not affiliated in any manner with Prudential PLC, incorporated in the United Kingdom, or with Prudential Assurance Company, a subsidiary of M&G PLC, incorporated in the United Kingdom. Copyright 2021. The PGIM logo and the rock symbols are service marks of PGIM's parent and its related entities registered in many jurisdictions worldwide.